Well, good morning. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church. And for these down, you folks down at F3, good morning to you and onlineers. Glad you can join us. Well, we were, were back home from our pilgrimage to Nebraska. And um, that was kind of a joke, folks, uh, pilgrimage to Nebraska. But uh, I guess you thought I was serious. <laughs> Good to be back, though. I, um, you know, I, I, I'm always encouraged. Jesus said, "I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it." And last Sunday, I was um, preaching from the pulpit where 40 years ago last month I began my pastoral ministry out in rural Nebraska, a little church called uh, Butte Community Bible Church, and it was a really enjoyable time to be back there to see what God is doing. The day before, on Saturday, I was um, sitting around a table with a group of young men, uh, young uh, dads and, and um, husbands uh, doing a Bible study. And it uh, just brought back those memories where 35, 40 years ago, I was sitting around a table with a group of young men who are now older men uh, and leaders of their church and to see God continuing to build his church. Then on Monday, uh, last Monday, I was sitting around uh, tables with a whole bunch of young moms, uh, some of whom had just recently come to faith in Christ. And to be able to um, have a Bible study with them and to see that next generation, even in these very rural areas of, uh, of our country, and to know that God continues to build his church. I sat in the home of uh, some elderly um, friends who uh, well into their 90s, who when I was pastoring there were uh, uh, well well into their 50s. And um, again, to hear them talk about their, their hope in the Lord and the hope of eternal life and to see how God has built his church and has continued to do it. So it was very, very encouraging. I just, I just don't, don't you just love how God um, does works in people's lives and he's continuing to build his church? Um, good things uh, happening uh, in various parts of the world, even in parts of the world where there is a lot of uh, turmoil. You know, there's places in the world that it's very difficult to even name the name of Christ. I don't know if you caught how earlier this month another, another 140 school children in northwest Nigeria were taken, were abducted by uh, radical Islamists, um, this time in a Baptist Christian school. Uh, just last week, 28 of them were released, but um, it's very, very dangerous to be a follower of Christ in parts of the world. We're reminded in first, uh, 2 Timothy 3 that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus are going to, they're going to suffer. There's going to be persecution, and we can't get away from that. Uh, we live in a world that is antagonistic to God. Now, we're studying through the book of Romans. We'll get back to it here. And the passage that we left off with in Romans chapter 12 was a passage that um, talked about how we are to, uh, to live out our, our calling as believers in this hostile world. Chapter 12, verse 14 said, Bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. He goes on in verse 17 through 21 and says, Never pay back evil to anyone, uh, that we are to, if possible, be at peace with all people. And never take vengeance, because God said, Vengeance is mine, I'll repay. We leave that with God. And he says, um, don't ever pay back evil with evil. Um, in fact, conquer evil by doing good, he says. 
Obviously, Paul is dealing with um, believers in Jesus Christ living in Rome. He's writing to Romans under a very evil regime of Nero and addressing issues about how we are to live our life. The first 11 chapters of Romans was the doctrinal section, laying out doctrinal truth and foundations of justification and, and sanctification truth, all things that we've talked about in the months previously. But starting at chapter 12, it's the practical section. It's, okay, now based on these, these, these mercies of God, chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you, I beg you therefore, by the mercies of God, present yourself a living sacrifice. And don't be conformed to the world's way of thinking, verse 2. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind in verse 3 through 8. It's, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Understand your, your role within the body of Christ. And then verse 9, let your love be without hypocrisy. Let, let your love be, be the real thing, genuine and sincere, and we've unpacked that. And obviously Paul has to raise these questions about, so, so what if... What if people do us bad? I mean, what if we live around people who hate us? Well, bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. Don't pay back evil with evil. Let vengeance be God's. But there must have been another question that arises in the minds of these early believers in Rome. They're the capital, the, the seat of power of the empire. What do we do with with governments? How do we, as citizens of heaven, live out our calling as, as, as a citizen on earth? How are we to respond to governmental authorities and empires and nations? Well, starting in chapter 13, verse 1, Paul is going to address that. And um, he says some very um, very interesting things like be subject to governmental authorities because there's no authority that has not been placed there other than what God has permitted to be placed there. And he goes on into the details of our role as believers within um, our, our status as citizens of earth. Now, next week, Dennis McNutt is going to come and unpack that passage for us. In fact, it's going to be kind of Dennis's... Uh, uh, final sermon here as he takes up uh, his uh, pastoral duties down at our church plant in Woodstock. So uh, I wanted him to be in the pulpit one final time here. And so why not give him a really tough passage to handle? That's what I figure, you know. <laughs> so that is a good unpack that a little bit. So this morning, what I want to do is paint some very broad um, theological um, foundation pieces, key points uh, about nations and governments and just lay out a very, very broad um, um, basis for understanding nations uh, and, and governments, kind of a biblical theology of governments, if you will. I've got six points. Now, every one of these points could be a sermon in themselves. So pray that we can get out in time because um, there's a lot of things in here that I'm going to just have to assume, but I'm going to share them with you and, and you can... Uh, go back and figure out the details a little bit more thoroughly on your own, okay? So six points. Here's the first point that I want to share, and that is that nations arose because of God's judgment. So take your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis. We're going to flip around a little bit today. Get those uh, fingers moving on your digital Bible or your, your written word here. But Genesis chapter 11, we know this is the story of the Tower of Babel. 
right? Verse 11, chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about, verse 2, that as they journeyed east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there, and they, they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar, and they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Well, verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they're one people, and they all have the same language. And this is, the, is what uh, they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. So come, verse 7, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city and therefore its name was called Babel because they were because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now chapter 10 the previous chapter lays out kind of the the impact of that. So chapter 10 is what's called the table of the nations. The sons of Noah and the the, the nations uh, that that came from those sons of Noah. And chapter 11, what we just read, is the kind of the, the theological reason why nations came to existence. Nations came to existence, they arose because of a judgment of God. Let's go down, confuse their language, and scatter them over the face of the earth. And from that came the nations. Now, chapter 12, verse 1, begins... Uh, a, a focal point on one particular family, one particular nation, the family of Abraham. God, verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country, from your relatives, and from your father's house to a land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The nations of the world arose because of a judgment of God, but God is saying there's one nation that I will raise up that I'm going to bless singly. This nation that comes from Abraham, the nation of Israel, and it'll be through this one nation that eventually all the nations of the world will be blessed once again. The reverse of the curse, if you will. And so that's the second point I want to emphasize, is that only one nation can claim to be God's inheritance, the nation of Israel. Now, turn with me over to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 32. Verse 7. Remember the days of old, he's, he's writing out to the Jewish people and warning them to make sure they follow him, follow the Lord. Remember the days of old, verse 7, consider the years of all generations and ask your father, your fathers, and he will inform you, your elders, and they will tell you when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, look at verse 8, when he separated the sons of men, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of, most of our translations say sons of Israel. 
the English Standard Version, if you have an ESV version, it says, according to the sons of God, which I think is the, the proper translation based on other manuscripts and, and um, the Dead Sea Scrolls and things like that. Verse 8 again, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of men, he set boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Verse 9, for the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. Yahweh took as his inheritance of all the nations on the face of the earth, one nation, his allotment, was Israel. All the other nations were separated. It refers back to the Tower of Babel, the story we just read. Psalm uh, 33 says a very similar thing. Blessed is the nation whose God is Jehovah, is Yahweh, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. That's Israel, one nation. So what happened to all the other nations that were scattered that arose from this judgment of God at Babel. What happened to all those nations? How do we define them? Well, that's the third point. All other nations are allotted to Satan and his demonic minions, to the demonic realm. Now track with me here. Let's go back a few chapters to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 19. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 19 and 20 says, And beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the hosts of heaven and be drawn away and worship them. Now he's again warning the Israelites. Like all the other nations, they have gods. Well, guard yourself, beware when you see the, the sun and the moon and the stars and the hosts of heaven and be drawn away and worship them and serve them those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples on the whole earth, uh, under the whole heaven, but the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron uh, furnace from Egypt to be a people for his own possession as today. Now what's the point here? God has allotted, it says there, to all nations other, other gods, demons, in judgment, he scattered the people over the face of the earth, and the nations arose. And it was as if he turned all those nations over to other gods. But he said, I'm going to keep one nation for myself. My inheritance, my allotment is Israel. And turn the others over to the demonic realm. Now, go back to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Verse 16, Deuteronomy 32, verse 16, they made him jealous with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. Verse 17, they sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods, to Elohim, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately whom your fathers did not dread. And you neglected the rock who begot you. Other gods, demonic realm, demons. God has made Israel his inheritance. The true one and only God, Jehovah Yahweh, 
allotted himself an inheritance of one nation, Israel. And all other nations were allotted or were separated unto the demonic realm. Now keep tracking with me here. Let's go to Daniel chapter 10. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel chapter 10. A very interesting passage. Daniel chapter 10 verse 11. Daniel has been visited by an angel in chapter 9, Gabriel. Now he comes again, I think. It's Gabriel. Behold, verse 10, a, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And verse 11, he said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I'm about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling, and he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. Daniel had prayed a marvelous prayer in the previous chapter, Daniel 9. And Gabriel saying, I've come in response to your prayer, verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. And then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. And now I have come, verse 14, to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. What happened? Da Daniel's praying. Took three weeks, and all of a sudden, here comes the answer to his prayer, but Gabriel has to give an explanation. He said, I was in battle with the, with the prince of Persia. Jump down to verse 20. Then Gabriel said, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I'm going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Now, what is going on here? There's a prince of Persia, a prince of Greece. What I think what is going on is that there are demonic overseers of the nations. Why? Deuteronomy. The Genesis 11, the people are scattered. That's where all the nations arose. And God permits the allotment, the, the, the giving over of the nations to this demonic realm, except for one. He said, my allotment, my people, my, my chosen nation, my inheritance is Israel. Remember what it says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, the whole world lies in the power and the control of the evil one. Jesus said it this way in John 14, 30, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing to in me. Satan is the chief ruler of the world. He's the chief ruler of the world, but there are other rulers of the world in that demonic realm, in that supernatural realm, in that unseen realm. Other rulers of the world. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, for our struggle is not against, literally it says, blood and flesh. What's it against? The rulers, or some of our translations say principalities, against the powers, against the world forces. Translations might say cosmic forces. 
of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Our battle is against rulers and powers and, and world cosmic forces. Cosmocratoris is the word. Cosmos, world, cratoris, leaders, rulers, cosmocratoris. That's that unseen realm. That's that realm of the supernatural. The nations serve other demons, as it were, or the, the, there's this demonic realm that is overseeing, that is ruling the world forces of wickedness today. Luke chapter 4, in the account of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, it says that the first, trans, the first um, temptation was um, dealt with by Jesus by quoting Deuteronomy, but there's a second temptation there in verse, chapter 4, verse 5. It says that Satan takes him up on the pinnacle and he shows them all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, but it, it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered and said, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now I find it interesting that Jesus did not say, You liar, Satan. What you've just spoken is untrue. You have no claim over the kingdoms of the world. Jesus didn't say that. Uh, yeah, Satan is the father of lies. And he is deceived. But part of his means of deceiving others is to speak half-truths. And he took Jesus up on that pinnacle and he showed him the kingdoms of the world in a moment. He said, I'll give you all these for they are mine to dispose of. There was truth to that. The Tower of Babel, the nations were dispersed under judgment of God. The nations arose under judgment of God. They were placed under the, the control, the, the power of the evil one and his, his rulers, the, the cosmocratos, cortes, the, the, the world forces, the cosmic forces, except Israel. That's mine, God said. And now Satan comes to Jesus after 40 days of being tempted and he says, Jesus, I'll give these all to you if you just worship before me. I'll give them all to you. The God of this world in control of the world forces of darkness assigned to the nations of the world. And yet while Satan has this level of authority over this world and the kingdoms of this world, let's make no mistake that God is the ultimate sovereign over all. And that's where Satan had it wrong. I'll give all these to you if you just bow down before me. They'll all be yours. But you see, Jesus knew full well that one day all the nations of the world will be his, but not given to him by the demonic realm, but be given to him by his Father, who is the ultimate sovereign and ruler of all. Satan could offer the kingdoms to Jesus there in Luke 4, uh, but Jesus knew that ultimately they would be given to him by his Father. 
You know, why, why, why do horrible things happen in this world? Why do innocent school children get abducted and, and horrific things happen to them? Why, why, why are there evil regimes that rise and, and fall? And why are there world pandemics and world wars and all these bad things that happen? Why, why are there corrupt politicians and governments where rich get rich and the poor get poor? Powerful oligarchs that take control and take away people's freedoms and liberties? Why are there governments that seek to silence God's people? Why do things happen that make you scratch your head and say, where is God in all this? Because the whole world lies in the grip of the evil one. That's why. There is a ruler of this world, and the rulers that are under his control, the cosmocrates, controlling and, and, and spreading their wickedness and their evil in the nations of the world. But here's the fourth point. One day Jesus Christ will be given all the nations as his inheritance, and he will reign supreme over all. One day, Jesus Christ is going to be given all the nations as his inheritance and will reign supreme over all. You see, Psalm 2, verse 8 and 9, God the Father says, Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall shatter them like earthenware. I could go to passage after passage from the book of Isaiah that we studied a few years ago. Passage after passage where we find that at the end of the age when Jesus returns and he sets up his kingdom on earth and all the nations will come and they will bow before him and they will take their, their evil implements of war and, and they'll be changed into implements of peace and they will bow before the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Ask of me, said God, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. And that day is coming. A day when all the nations of the world will come under the authority of the Messiah, the Messianic King, who will reign supreme in this world. And he will reign over the nations with righteousness and justice, just like it was prophesied in the Old Testament. <laughs> Why would Jesus bend the knee to Satan when he knew the words of his Father, ask of me and I'll give you the nations as an inheritance? There's a, four, a fifth thing, and that is that God still holds ultimate sovereignty over all the nations. Even though Satan, God has allowed Satan a, a level of authority, and his, his rulers that function under him, the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece, and the prince of the United States of America, God still holds ultimate authority over all things. And while we await the day that God is going to reign supreme, while we await that day, we have to also understand in the midst of the darkness and the evil of this day, God reigns supreme. Nebuchadnezzar found that out in Babylon. Daniel chapter 4, verse 17, he said, The Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and he bestows it on whomever he wishes. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 15, 
by me kings reign and rulers decree judge justice. Or as we'll see next week in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, every person is to be in subjection to governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. You see, God can, and he does, use Satan. He has given Satan latitude as a function, uh, to function as a ruler of this world and spread his influence and his control and his wicked and evil agendas in the nations of the world. But God is the one who ultimately takes up leaders and puts them down. It's as if God ultimately gives Satan the permission, you can only go this far, and he'll raise up and he'll take down, God will, whatever leader he wants. I'll tell you what, it makes me a little uncomfortable when I think of that kind of a God. You think of the world rulers today and the world rulers of the past, but don't you think for one moment that God was wringing his hands and wondering, what is mankind doing down there? As Paul writes this, the evil ruler of Nero and the reign of Nero, the wickedness that was going on in that time, and he's reminding the believers in Rome, you bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Vengeance is mine, I'll repay. I'm in control, says God. You overcome evil by good. And, and by the way, while you're doing that, as a citizen of heaven, you, as a citizen of earth, be subject to all authority, which we'll talk about next week in more detail. Which leads me to the final point I want to bring out and that is that Christians are citizens of heaven and should conduct themselves accordingly. Christians are citizens of heaven. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, as we wrap this up, a brief overview. Philippians chapter 1, Paul is writing here to Christians in the city of Philippi, and if you remember anything about the city of Philippi uh, in a study we did <laughs> years ago. Um, Philippi was a Roman colony. It was um, designated as such um, centuries before Paul, a couple centuries before Paul wrote this. The citizens of Philippi, the city of Philippi, took great pride in the fact that they were Roman citizens. They were from Greece, Philippi and Greece, and, and yet they were designated as Roman citizens. They had a rich heritage of, of, of the, the, the pride of Rome. And they took pride in the fact that they were Roman citizens. But Paul now comes, and he's writing to these believers in Philippi, and he says in verse 27, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy. It's from a, a Greek word that Paul used, politeo, which we get our word politics, and it's a word that simply means conduct yourselves properly as a citizen. He takes a political term, which these Philippians would uh, appreciate, their Roman citizenship, and he says, now conduct yourselves properly as a citizen. But he's not talking about being a citizen of Rome. Chapter 3, verse 20 says that our citizenship is in heaven. 
And Paul is saying here in Romans chapter, or Philippians chapter 1, conduct yourselves as a proper citizen of heaven. So that whether I come and, and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel and in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them but of salvation for you and that too from God. For, verse 29, to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Paul is saying, oh, Philippians, you have taken great pride in your heritage. Citizens of Rome. It meant that they didn't have to pay taxes. They wouldn't be subjected to the cruelty of scourgings or crucifixions. Or they were Roman citizens. Paul is saying, oh, <laughs> Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of your citizenry of heaven. And what does that look like? What does it look like to be a citizen of heaven and while being a citizen of earth? Three things, he said. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, that you are striving together for the furtherance, the advancement of the gospel, and that you are suffering well without fear of our enemies. What does it look like to be a citizen of heaven, living in a world that the demonic realm is, has some control over, that is, where Satan is doing his wicked bidding and his influencing of the nations and of the governments that arise? What does it look like? Stand firm together in the faith. That's what it looks like, Paul says. Don't be separated. Don't be, don't be contentious with one another. Stand firm in the faith. Be well grounded in truth. Spend your time knowing God, knowing his word. Be rallied around what is true because Jesus said when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Our freedom comes not in how we vote. It comes in, in who we are and our identity in Christ. Stand firm in the faith. Just don't be pulled apart by every wind of doctrine, Ephesians chapter 4. Be united together, a united front in this world. That's what God's people, citizens of heaven, should be. And strive together. Strive together for what? What does it say? For the advancement of the gospel. Striving together for the, for the faith of the gospel. There's one thing that's going to change this world that's going, to have the, that's going to keep the demonic forces at bay. It's the cross of Christ. They cower at the face of the cross of Christ. They shudder at the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrated today. Stand firm in the faith and strive together for the advancement of the gospel. The church of Jesus Christ is raised up in this world so that we proclaim the good news of Jesus. And yes, the people Paul was writing to, they couldn't go to the ballot box and vote. They couldn't write their Roman senator and share their opinion and tell them, if you keep acting that way, we're going to vote you the bum out. <laughs> no, we can do that. 
I fear sometimes that we as Christians put so much emphasis on that 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 becomes our hope. Paul doesn't say that we strive together for political change. He doesn't even say strive together for social justice. He says strive together for the advancement of the gospel, for the good news of Jesus, because that is what's going to keep the powers of wickedness at bay. So when people come to faith in Jesus Christ, that's when lives are changed. That's when societies are transformed. And that's when God is honored. For the sake of Christ, Paul says. Strive together for the advancement of the gospel. And while you're doing it, you're going to suffer persecution. So suffer well. And isn't it interesting that Paul says there in verse 29, for to you it has actually been granted. It's where we get our word grace. To you it has been granted not only to believe in him, and we would all say hallelujah, praise God. Man, I, I am going to heaven because it has been granted to me to believe in him. God has given me the wonderful gift of eternal life through faith in Christ alone. What a glorious gift. And Paul says in the very next breath, or the same breath, it's been granted to you not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. And that's where we want to put the screeching halt to things and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, suffering? It's part and parcel of living in a world that has been allotted over to the demonic realm. A world that is yet to see the reign of the king. It's coming. It's coming when he sets up his kingdom on earth and all the nations then will bow before him and Satan and his minions will be bound. Why should we live out carefully our heavenly citizenship in this world? Why should we do it? Ephesians chapter 3 says, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to these rulers and authorities in the heavenly places in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. The cosmocrates are watching. The cosmic forces, the world powers of darkness, they're watching. They're watching the church of Jesus Christ, the called out ones, the ecclesia of God. That's us if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And they're watching. But let's not forget they're defeated. Colossians chapter 2, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he's taken it all out of the way at the cross, nailed it to the cross. And when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Jesus Christ. Folks, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have nothing to fear. We are more than conquerors in this world. Our citizenship is in heaven and our eternal salvation is secured and the kingdom of Christ is coming again. And when I read the Bible, the last chapters of the Bible, guess what? We win. We win! So as believers in Jesus Christ, let's not go through this world wringing our hands and wondering, oh, oh, social justice, oh, my, we got to do this, oh, oh, we're losing all our freedoms. Yeah, we might. Stand firm in the faith, strive together for the gospel, and suffer well. And as Americans, go vote, 
be good citizens, and we'll talk about that next week a little bit more in Romans chapter 13. Do you get the point? Oh, if we could only have, we've said this many times, if we could only have those special glasses, those spiritual glasses that we could put on and see the realm of darkness. Really see the world as it really is. The spiritual forces of wickedness battling. But we stand under the banner of the cross of Jesus Christ. And those world cosmic forces are watching. Do they see the manifold wisdom of God being lived out in the life of the church of Jesus Christ? I sat there last week with these young people, little rural Nebraska, an unseen place, a forsaken place on the map of this great country, hearing testimonies of people, young people, who had grown up in darkness, one gal uh, gripped in alcoholism and abuse and, and then came to faith in Christ, in love with Jesus, sitting around in a little rural town of 300 people with a Bible open, in love with Jesus. And folks, the manifold wisdom of God was on display the power of the cross, what we celebrated today in communion, was triumphant. We are citizens of heaven. We've won. Let's pray. Father God, remind us again of our position in Christ, of our of our relationship with you, which is unshakable. Remind us often of the mercies of God and that we present ourselves to you as living sacrifices, which looks like which looks like Father standing firm in the faith and, and striving together for the hope of the, of the gospel while we suffer well before the watching gaze of the cosmic forces and the archons, the rulers of the world that have been assigned to all the nations of the world to do the bidding of the evil one and they don't have a prayer. There's no hope because you are the victor. Lord Jesus, we would say, come, Lord Jesus. Shatter the power of the, of the demonic hordes the, that have this world in their grip. Shatter them like earthenware. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.